Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, again, I ask if you haven't done so to open your Bibles to Genesis 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one probably in the seat in front of you within a few seats. It's the black one. I would invite you to take that if you don't have a Bible and keep it. Put your name on it so that um, you know it's yours. And if somebody says, hey, what are you doing with that Bible? You just say it's mine. Uh, The church is happy to give it to you. We want you to have the Bible. We always want you to bring your Bible and look at what it says. If you don't know where Genesis is, it's at the very, very beginning of the Bible. So very simple to find. All you have to do is find chapter 3. Now, we won't get there for a second. I, I need to build this up, and I have a sermon that has 11 pages to it, but I only think I got to page 6 in the first service, so I have to uh, end on page 6 again. And so um, what you have in your notes are, is more than what we will be touching on in the sermon. Just a few days ago, as you well know, a major attack in Israel occurred. It was played out for all of the world via the internet. Some of the images that were broadcast and still being broadcast are horrible. They're terrifying. They're they're exceedingly violent. Along with that, last year, Russia launched a full-scale attack upon the nation of Ukraine, and that's been something that was building over the years, and it still rages today. I just got word of a master seminary graduate, my old seminary, who um, his church that he has in Ukraine was just destroyed uh, through a bomb, and uh, there was loss of life and loss of the entire structure, and many families devastated. So it affects us. Even if you don't think it affects you, it's affecting your family, it's affecting your brothers and sisters. And in our private and public conversation, there are found to be as many opinions on what is happening as there are people. And so you have protests and rejection and anger and vitriolic shouts can be found on every side of this whole issue. And all the while, people continue to die, lives are shattered, and many of them will never be rebuilt in any way, shape, or form. Now then, you can add to that a rise in something that some of you are aware of and others may not be, but a sudden rise in what's formally now being called Christian nationalism, and it's starting to take more and more of a clear form, and that is now being pushed very strong within the various social media areas and outlets, and so those of you who stay off that, you're probably ignorant of it, and that's probably to your benefit. Those of you that are on it, you certainly can't miss coming across it. And then you run into just individuals. We've had people come here. This is our church who would very much be part of that group. And they start talking. And some of the things they say, 
make you say, yeah, I agree with that. And maybe other things you're not so sure about. And so many people right now are saying that the rise of what's called Christian nationalism is a good thing. It's a much needed correction in the direction of the church in America, where men are being called to be men and to stand up and be strong men, brave men, men who will stand in the gap, that sort of thing. And we need to get away from this winsome, metrosexual, vague guy who sort of talks in a winsome manner and and just appeals to you, but he's very soft. But then you have the others who would say that Christian nationalism is from the very pit of hell. And these are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what do you do? They're saying, no, this is from hell itself. It is to be rejected. It is even subject to being derided. If you are thinking or a compassionate Christian, you must reject wholesale the whole idea of Christian nationalism. And then you have the majority on this subject in the church, and that is they're just, they don't know what to do. You know, how do we make this place a Christian nation? That's the goal of Christian nationalism is to bring the nation back to Christ, which is sounds good. I would even agree with that. The question is, how is that done? How do we go about making this a Christian nation? And then if we're going to make it a Christian nation, how do we do that? What, what laws do we bring back? How, how do we execute those laws? Are we bringing back theonomy, which is the idea that we are under the Mosaic law and we are to function like God established in Israel. And so there's certain things that would be capital crimes and we are to execute punishment quickly and finally, i.e. through capital punishment. And they have other people saying, oh my gosh, where's the grace? Where's the love of Christ? And all of this is going back and forth. And then you start saying, well, I think it'd be good if we were a Christian nation. We would like to be a Christian nation, wouldn't we? And then somebody says, okay, but what happens if your view of baptism doesn't square with what the ones who are in the leadership of the Christian nation say? If any of you know any of the things about Christian history, a group that were called, and they were called by their enemies, their detractors, called Anabaptists that during the Reformation, there arose many who were reading their Bible, and they're like, look, I appreciate this paedo-baptism, but I don't see it. I don't see it for the church. It's not there. Everybody who gets baptized in the New Testament, everyone is a believer. I'm not sure we're supposed to just get baptized as, as part of our citizenship in this nation in Germany or in Switzerland or wherever it might be uh, rising up. And so they began to get baptized again, hence the word Anabaptist. They were rebaptizers. But it was done, that term was not a, a term that was a pleasant one. It was one of derision and hatred. And what had happened is that because there were people saying, look, the church and state are, should be separate, and we should not enforce or require a person to be baptized, and then they're just now declared a Christian. Depending on however you want to view it, doesn't really matter if it's a more of a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Church of England. In some way, shape, or form, that makes you a Christian or you're treated as a Christian. They say, no, you should be baptized as a believer. Well, do you know what happened to them in those Christian nations? They were summarily executed. Most of them were tortured first, but they were executed. The favorite form of doing that was to tie them to a chair and then stick them out and lower them with a lever into a pond or a lake 
multiple times until they drowned, and the whole time laughing at them, you want to be rebaptized and be rebaptized. This is your Christian brothers and sisters. So when we say we want a Christian nation, are we going to allow for this or not allow for it? It's, it, the devil is always in the details. It's not as clean as you like to think it is. So what's it mean to make a Christian nation? What does it even mean? What's the process of accomplishing a Christian nation? It's easy for you to say, I want a Christian nation. Okay, but what's that going to look like? That's not as clean. Then you can add to the mix the way you view the Jew and the nation of Israel. That's going to really impact how you view what's going on today in Israel as the battle goes on. And the roots of that go way deep into the heart of theology that many times we're not aware of. And as a result, you end up with Christians who will cheer either side of the issue. They'll cheer the Palestinian who is going in and conducting the raids as a good and right thing that God would approve of. And then you have on the other side, those who would be all Israel all the time, 24-7, saying, no, they should crush the Palestinian. And it really comes down to how do you understand the role of Israel and the Jew and, and, and the relationship of that with God and his plan. And so you have all sorts of people with all kinds of opinions, and it gets pretty ugly. And so on, on Twitter, that's now called X, you have all these self-proclaimed leaders. I always laugh um, because it's like, who made you the leader? But they're all out there, and they're all saying they're, ter- they're making their statements. And they're like, look, one guy is saying, look, whatever you want to say, what you see happening in Israel is not being done to the biblical Israel. And so it doesn't really matter. And then, oh, and everyone's like, well, what do you mean? Well, there's a theology behind that. There's something driving that. And it's very popular in our nation right now. And we don't think through it. So what are you and I supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about this? Well, let me give you some questions to give you a place to start. What do you think should be the response of the USA toward the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Would you say it's none of your business? Mind you that the vast majority of the, uh, of the world's fertilizer is produced by Ukraine. I don't know if you knew that. And so it's rapidly and, and has been substantially interrupting the flow of fertilizer, hence higher food prices, because the farmers are having to buy much more expensive uh, fertilizer or not any at all, and it's affecting everything. So... Does that knowledge help you think through, well, what should we be doing with the Ukraine-Russian thing? It's not our problem, or we should get on the side of Ukraine, um, or we should be on the side of Russia, or we should be just quiet. What's your position? And then, after you form that, let me ask you this. What should be your thought about what's happening right now in Israel and the Gaza Strip? Should it be the same, or is it going to be a different thing? Kim and I were, uh, had dinner last night after driving around and just seeing the beauty of our, our state. And we had a dinner in a restaurant that was run and owned and operated by Palestinians. And so the conversations that they were having were quite interesting to listen to as we were eating about their perspective of what's going on. Is that different? Is that different than what Russia's doing to Ukraine? Or is it the same? And should we handle it very simple? Or should we just stay out of it? 
and have nothing to do with it. However, how, how often have you ever discussed or debated war, actually? And if you have, my question to you would be, how did the gospel of Jesus Christ come into play in your discussion? Or did it? Or should it? In any discussion on war, did you find yourself describing your view of the war and what should be done from a biblically informed perspective or really from a politically derived ideology? What I mean by ideology is is the conviction or beliefs that drive a position or stance on something. So I have a position, I want lower taxes. That's my ideology. Less government is always going to be better than more government. That's an actual conviction of mine. If I could figure a way to make government go away more and more, I would count that as good. It should be very, very limited. So that's my ideology that drives how I approach, how I vote, or how I talk on a subject. And oftentimes what you'll find is that when we talk about politics and when we talk about war and, and supporting war and the war effort and, and the war machine or the war industry, uh, all of those things, it really flows out of an ideology rather than a biblical theology. And it's usually more driven in such a way that we are less interested in the quality of a person who's going to lead us than the ideology they hold to. Now, you think about that. Who did, I don't want to know. I don't care. But who did you vote for president? And why? Both Biden and Trump are godless men. So what drove you? I'll tell you, it was ideology. You like what one of them said. You like their methods. You think certain things, and it's an ideology. It has no bearing upon their conduct. Now, I'm not even telling you that's right or wrong. I'm just telling you, when you and I function, we generally don't think theologically. We think politically and ideologically in almost all we do. Why were the riots in Kenosha so wrong, or were they? These are the kinds of things I want you to start thinking about. It only takes a short time of listening or reading one's statements about war or justice or violence to see that most people are actually ideologically driven rather than biblically driven in their thoughts. I would argue they shouldn't be at odds with one another, but it does require thinking. One of the things I said first service is there's a lot of people who roll their eyes about that whole idea of, well, we need to be nuanced and winsome. And to a degree, I, would, I hate it myself because it becomes a mechanism to manipulate words to change meaning. Well, we just, it's a little bit more nuanced. Can a, gr- a person be gay and a Christian? Well, it's nuanced. Is it really nuanced? How nuanced is it? And then, so we hear that, and then we react against the word nuance. But in fact, much of theology is very nuanced. It's not nice and simple and black and white. Bomb Palestinians into oblivion. Just make them go away. Put a nuke. And just empty it out. Is Why? What's, what's the thinking behind all that? So I want to talk about the reality of war and violence, and I want to develop this over a few weeks. War is, is violent, 
and terrible. And so let me give this illustration. During the American Civil War in 1862, Confederate troops held a low ridge called Mary's Heights near Fredericksburg, Virginia. The Union troop sent to, uh, troops sent to assault Mary's Heights had to cross exposed ground, and wave after wave of Union troops charged, but were cut down before they could reach the Confederate lines. Over 12,000 men were killed that day. 12,000 men killed that day. Watching the battle, General Robert E. Lee turned to General James Longstreet, whose men were actually the ones holding Mary's Heights. And Lee said, it is well that war is so terrible, else we would grow too fond of it. Some of you would say, who would think that? Most of you do. Most of us have visions of war that's very sanitized. Those of you who've actually been in war, you know how nasty it is. You've seen it. And you've seen what it looks like. And you smelled it. And you realize that it's a lot more, lot more simple when the battle has begun than people think it is. And it's not a bunch of heroic events. And there is no crescendo and wonderful music in the background and, and things like that. It's just this ugly thing. And yet we romanticize, we write plays and movies and whatnot. Every young man at some point or another generally thinks about, man, wouldn't that be cool? Very seldom will a young boy watch a bunch of uh, military vehicles go by on the freeway without thinking that's so cool. And so he said, war is so terrible because we could grow too fond of it. I think that most will agree that war is not desirable in the sense of the suffering or death, and yet on the other hand, war nonetheless exists and we're good at making it. And as Christians, we need to have a perspective on why it takes place and if a Christian should be involved in it. And what if the fears of of many about the type of people coming across our borders right now comes true? You have to be a fool not to notice that so many of the people coming openly across the border illegally are young men of military age, and they have no children. Well, who are they? And so many people are very worried that what we're really doing is inviting terror cells in. Let's just say that's what happens. What happens if what took place in Israel here a couple days ago erupts here where all of a sudden all sorts of coordinated attacks took place? You had the leader of the Palestine call out for Friday to be a day of vengeance throughout the world. The point in all of this is that there is no consensus, though, on war if you love Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do is consider the reasons that war exists and why it's not a clean issue. It's not a simple issue, and it requires you to think more complexly than some of you perhaps are used to doing on this subject. And so why war? Why war? And the answer is simply this. It's because of sin. Some of you are like, well, I know that, Pastor. But do you? I mean, do you really grasp how sin operates in this world and in you? Too often, the simple answer is forgotten, and we try to get into economic reasons, and we talk about environmental reasons, and we talk about this, and we talk about that, and we try to make all of this so complex. 
But the reality is that war actually simply exists because sin exists, and as a result, there are wars. But what's even more important to understand in that is though it is caused by sin, and we'll look about that in a second, it's almost completely downplayed or misunderstood by non-Christians. If you want to do a deep dive, I would invite you to just spend several hours online looking at various groups about their view of war and evil. What is the basis? What's the core that, from which all of this springs out of? Where does this come from? War and evil is actually the kind of things that philosophers love to talk endlessly about because there really is no answer in their worldview. And so they can all posture, postulate all sorts of ideas and we end up still having war and babies are killed with their heads split open and old people starve to death as they're abandoned while the bombing starts and, and on and on and on. And we're like, well, we're still talking and no answer. Let me give you some ways that war has been approached by non-Christians. A woman named Mary Baker Eddy, she founded the Christian Science Movement. It's a cult. I remember as a young man, I was walking down the street and walked by a window. I love books. I read books all the time. And I saw all kinds of books in this window. So I just paused and I realized quickly that they were religious of some sort. So I was just kind of intrigued and was looking at what's in the window display. And all of a sudden, this old guy standing next to me, he's like, are you interested in what you're reading? And I had little warning bells go off in my head, but I'm like, uh, yeah, what is this? And I, I looked at the guy and it wasn't difficult he was clearly blind in one eye. One eye was completely opaque and, and white. There's no doubt that the eye didn't function. And he invites me in to talk. Next thing you know, I'm in there talking, thinking, well, he's a Christian. And I quickly realize he's not. And one of the things he got into was the idea that um, sickness doesn't exist. And I was young, but I wasn't stupid, that stupid at least. And I looked at him, and I said something to the effect of, I'm pretty sure you're blind. And he's like, no, I'm not. Pretty sure you are. <laughs> and he's like, no, no, that is, a, that, that is a lie. That's false. We believe we're blind, but we're not. I said, cover your good eye. Interestingly, he knew which one was his good eye. And I said, how many fingers am I holding up? And of course, he didn't know. I said, that's because you're blind. And he's like, no, I'm not. And he proceeds to try to explain to me the wonderful truths that Mary Baker Eddy discovered about sin and evil and death. For the Christian scientists, it's impossible for evil to actually exist. It just can't. And you're like, yeah, and yet it does. And they're like, no, it doesn't. That's just you thinking it exists. It's actually a merely an error in our thinking. In fact, we must learn to look past our physical senses to see the spiritual reality that is the only thing that's really real. Whatever is spiritually perceived is the only thing that's real. The physical part of our existence, including a blind eyeball, is just a subjective belief that we have apart from God and his perfections. It doesn't actually exist. We only lie to ourselves and think it exists. 
And so to remove evil is to deny it even exists. It's that simple. And so here's how they approach it. The way we destroy sin and disease is by to the degree that we know that they really don't exist. So a Christian scientist spends their entire life trying to believe only what they think is true, and that is that there is no death, there is no disease, there is no evil, there is no war. All of that is a lie that we're believing, and we just need to believe the truth, and eventually that will go away. What a exercise of futility as your body continues to break down. But for them, evil just doesn't exist. That's how we deal with that. What about Judaism? Well, much of the Jewish thought about evil and violence are the result of God dealing out retribution to the people for not obeying his law. This is really a, a, a they built this off of the Mosaic covenant with God and Mo, uh, Moses and Israel, where he says, if you do this, you obey, you'll be blessed. If you do this, you'll be cursed. And so they took that, and now they see that all things related to life on a micro level, individual level, or a macro level on a national or world level, all of it is just God dealing out retribution for the breaking of his law. And so that's why in John 9 with the blind man that the disciples look at Jesus, and there's a man born blind since birth, and they ask, who sinned him or his parents? Because for them, the only way that he could be blind is that God is dealing out retribution. Some of you have fallen into that, that something's happened to you, and you wonder, did I do something wrong to deserve that? And it's a wrong way of looking at it, but it's a common way. So various schools of thought in Judaism uh, results in almost no real explanation, though, about evil. In fact, one rabbi, he argues that we shouldn't try to understand evil at all because it's impossible. Instead, we should learn to respond to evil and fight against evil wherever we find it. The problem with that is that requires that you know what evil is and then how to fight it. Do you? Do you know what evil is and do you know how to fight it? What about Hinduism? Well, Hinduism is a very complex religion made up of many gods, but evil is not defined in Hinduism as a rebellion against God. It's not something against gods or God. It's just simply the result of free will of the people as well as karma. One of the things I wish every Christian would stop using in this casual conversational way is the word karma. Well, that's just karma, buddy. No, it's not. And and what you do is you actually show yourself to be a pagan every time you invoke that phrase. There's no such thing as karma. That's not what it is. You know, what what you're describing is a completely false worldview. Well, the guy, why why'd he uh, get killed? Well, that's karma. You know, he was he was doing all kinds of bad stuff, so it came back on him. And that's actually Hinduism. For them, all evil is not really the problem. So for the Hindu, evil is not a problem. If you ever go into India and you look at how Hinduism works itself out in real life, it's ugly. Why? Because evil is not the problem. Because it's not in any relationship to the God or gods. They don't ever say, well, evil exists because they're in rebellion to their creator. 
Rather, it's just part of your existence. Evil is there, whatever you want to call evil, and it's simply due to you doing dumb things and karma coming on to you. And the only way you're ever going to be liberated from this evil is by this endless cycle of rebirth or reincarnation. Only Americans think reincarnation's cool. Ooh, wouldn't it be neat to come back as a butterfly? Are you stupid? You, you're going to give up being made in the image of God to become a butterfly and then get eaten by some bug? Well, it's just so... I, I, wouldn't it be cool to soar like an eagle? Bible even talks about lift us up on wings of eagle. Maybe that's reincarnation, Pastor. No, it's not. And no, you don't want to be an animal. But that's all you're doing. You're working it off, dealing with this, your choices that you made with your free will. You act like a pig. Next life, you might be born as a pig. The whole caste system of Hindu is drawn out of Hinduism. You're born into a certain caste. And so that's why they won't help a person who's in the lowest untouchable caste. That's why there's no help for them because they're working off what they did in the previous life. They deserve it. That's not evil. That they got raped multiple times as a small girl on the streets born into one of these families. That's not evil. That's just karma. Must have done something in the life before. And it's just this wickedness that keeps flowing out, and that's their answer. The whole goal is to ultimately, through reincarnation, work yourself upward until you can be reabsorbed into the university of deity, whatever that means, and now come into an eternal state of bliss. And here's the key, nothingness. Your whole goal is to just stop being. Then you can talk about a guy named Nietzsche. Maybe you don't want to, but I will. Nietzsche, a 19th century philosopher. He argued that we should abandon categories such as good and evil. You think about what's going on in our nation, our world, and listen to the effects that it had by a guy named Nietzsche. German philosopher, was one of the major influences of Hitler. And he says, you know what? What we need to do is stop having categories of good and evil. The reason is that there is nothing that you can really call truly evil or good. You can't objectively call anything that way. Rather, all we do with evil is we use that term to demonize your enemies rather than to state truth. That's politics today. You take a position, and then they just rip on you, and they call you evil. Why? They don't believe it's evil, because they would do it just as quick themselves if that would bring them more power. They do it only to demonize you, and that's it. There is no actual evil. And so to Nietzsche, evil arises out of negative emotions of hatred, envy, and such. And so we need to stop calling something evil or good, now here's the rub, and instead focus on the motives of the people who are doing something. What's that mean? That means that instead of saying it's right or wrong, we just look at the motives. Well, the guy's going to do this, and it's, if, if this group did it, we'd call it evil, but we'll call it good because this group's going to do it, and they're going to then bring about the things we want. That's how you vote. That's how you vote most of the time. You will overlook the, the candidate and you will vote 
simply because, well, yeah, I don't think that's right, but he's going to use it in such a way that will benefit me, so I'm going for it. You're just acting as Nietzsche, who believed God was dead. So he, along with several other philosophers, were embraced by Hitler in the early development of his twisted thinking to exalt war to the highest form of human existence. You may not know that, but Hitler he believed that war was the highest form of human existence, to do war. I'm, I'm reading right now the rise and fall of the Third Reich and been spent a lot of time hearing about Nietzsche, and that's why you're hearing about him. Nietzsche argued that every great thing on earth began and was soaked thoroughly in blood. He's actually right. Everything great in this world that we see was born out of blood and violence. And in that book, it's called Beyond Good and Evil, he also states that here one must think profoundly to the very basis and resist all sentimental weakness, And that is that life itself is essentially appropriation, the taking. Life is essentially appropriation, injury, conquest of the strange and the weak, suppression, severity, obtrusion of peculiar forms, incorporation, and at the least, putting it mildest, mildest, exploitation. He's like, that's life. Life is you exploiting your power over another that you think is strange or wrong or off. And there's nothing wrong with it because there is no good or evil. It's just simply a tool for you to accomplish what you want. And the greatest ideal is for this to take place forever. And then, because you often think about this, there's this thing that's called Manichaeanism, or the Manichaean dualism, and I'm sure you talk about that all the time in your lunch and and over breakfast with your kids. But Manichaeanism is something that we still deal with today. It was founded in third century. It says that the universe is composed of a battle between two principles that are co-equal or co-eternal. This is found in their Eastern thinking, yin and yang. Uh, I think it's called feng shui. Is that the proper way to pronounce it? It's a whole idea of creating harmony, a balance in your home. And, and as you bring that harmony and balance in your decor, and the way your house is laid out, that brings harmony into your life. That is false. It's from the pit of hell. And it's all part of Manichaeanism. And yet people are, I really like the feng shui kind of concept. It's just showing you don't think biblically. For them, it's two principles that are co-equal, co-eternal. You and I will call them good and evil. And so this world, this physical world that we live in, has somehow trapped the good in the prison of matter, of stuff. So the physical body is evil, and it's trapped the spirit that's good in it. And in there is this battle. And that's why there's this battle. And there's this greater battle outside that you have good and evil seeking to have a balance. And many of you inadvertently think that without even knowing that you think that. Because it's so much part of what we live in. 
And so we have a constant war inside every person and on larger corporate scales between two equal forces. And many religions, especially those in Asia and the Indian continent, see that the best we can do is maintain a balance or a harmony between the two. That's all we're doing. Just things, the universe is out of balance. And that's what we're seeing. That's still today. Modern theories about war and evil abound, but one of the most common today is relativism, born out of the postmodern world. And so what is evil to you is not necessarily evil. It all depends on your perspective. And this is where the church has gone awry. It's bought into postmodernism. And this is why everything has to be nuanced to death. Because there isn't, look, just because you call it evil doesn't mean it's evil. Let's talk about the gay Christian. Well, the gay Christian is an oxymoron. It literally can't exist any more than the drunk Christian or the thief Christian. There is no such thing as these things. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Paul says repeatedly, these people who practice these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There is no balance. There is nothing. There is no nuance to that. There's none of this. And yet we create this in our mind. We have a creator God who has made us and he demands that we live under his rule. And the only way we can do that, obviously, is through Christ. And so they would say in the postmodern world that something is not necessarily evil. It all depends on your perspective. So good can actually be bad and the other way around. The whole BLM systemic racism flows out of this thinking. You say, so anybody can be a racist. No, you can't. Only a white man, a white person can be racist. And you're like, how? How? Depends on how you perceive it, how you think about it. So you're saying that that looting that you just saw there is not theft. No, that's justice. How, how did that become justice? And on and on it goes. Why? Because facts don't matter. Reality doesn't matter. Everything is relative. And this is what's affected the church. I would argue that it's best to just go down old paths. And we've taken quite a while to get to that old path, but I want you to, I wanted you to see this because it's important that you realize that there are all sorts of forces, and these are only a few, at play in your mind. That you, if you've gone to public school, you've been immersed in this, whether you knew it or not. And those of you now in the classical model of uh, education, you're being immersed in a whole different worldview that um, not necessarily is all of that going to be correct. And most of us are, are what um, in Acts 17, the philosophers call, you're a seed picker. You pick a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here, and you don't really hold to any mature form of any philosophy or as I would want you to be, is you don't hold to a solid, sound theology born out of the Scripture. You're just sort of there. And whatever hits you at the time, you look at a shattered body of, of, of what you saw perhaps of some of the homes where the Palestinian uh, soldiers went in and just slaughtered everyone. You see the bus stop with all the elderly with bullet wounds as they're just lied strewn there. And you say, this is wrong. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Then you start seeing pictures of what goes on in Gaza. 
and the, and the result of the bomb. And you're like, this is wrong. This is wrong. And, and you're torn. What do you, how, do you, how do you work through that? Well, you're not going to get an answer today. <laughs> um, you're just going to get the beginnings. But I'm going to build on this because I think that giving you an emotional thing doesn't help you, but what giving you a sound biblical theology helps you begin to think through it because not all of you will land on the same conclusions. I don't think you can because the Bible doesn't give us certain conclusions. It leaves it to a certain point open to you. But let's go to Genesis 3, and let's deal with the story you know exceedingly well. Now, we know that God, in the first two chapters, we see God creating the heavens and the earth, and we see him making, at the point, at the high point of creation, man, Adam himself, a single male, who is a representative of all of humanity, and he was put basically as vice regent. His job was to now unfold the mind and will of God upon this universe. He's placed in a garden where he can see what it should look like. And he's given tremendous freedoms of every tree you can eat, but this one. On the day that you eat of that, you will die. He's then given the task of naming all of the animals because he's in charge. So it's up to him to give them names. And part of that was designed to show him that he didn't have someone like him. And so he's like, hey, there's male and female, male and female, male and female, but I don't have somebody like me. And then God creates Eve from him. Now he's all happy. And now we come to the story, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, so now the serpent, who we know later is defined as Satan, is talking to her, and he says, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? So he wants to know, what do you think is true? What has God said? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it lest you die. Well, actually God didn't say that. All he says is you shall not eat from it or you will die. Very likely this is what Adam added. As we're walking, he's showing his new wife, the garden and everything else. She's going to say, what about this tree? He's like, that one we're not allowed to eat. In fact, don't even touch it. Isn't that what you as parents do? What about those cookies? Don't even look at them. Don't even look at them. What you really want is them not to eat them, but you're just like, don't even look at them. Well, that's essentially what's going on there. And the serpent then says, now he's going to actually contradict God's word. You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, Try to grasp this. Up to this point, man and woman, they did not know what good and evil was. Picture what that must be like. You can't. You literally cannot. You have no idea any more than I do what the absence of a knowledge of good and evil looks like. Because every one of you right now are hiding things that you hope nobody finds out. Every one of you carries the scars of folly and sin in your life. You all know it. And we don't, the best we can do is manage it, right? Deal with it. But we have no idea what it would like, what mean to wake up and literally not know what good and evil means. In other words, 
on the day you will know what good and evil is, would be like me saying to you, on that day, you will know what jockish and fugle is. All right. Don't know what those are. That's right. Let's keep it that way. And then you eat, and you find out what those things are. Now, the effects hit you. And this is you and I every single day of our lives. And so the woman... We see a progression here. She saw the tree was good for food, so likely time is going on here, and she's thinking about this. The tree was good for food, so she's worked that one out. It was a delight to the eyes. It is a beautiful tree, and it was desirable to make one wise. So she's cut out what God said now, right? And now it's just her. That's you and I as well. And she's like, it will make me wise, And so she took from his fruit and ate, and then we find out that idiot Adam is standing with her, and she gave to her husband who was with her, and he eats. Now, when she ate, she sinned, but she was not the representative of the world and of humanity. When Adam ate, he ate with full knowledge, and he brought sin and death into the world. And so the eyes of both of them were now open, and now they knew what good and evil was. Maybe not to its fullest, but all of a sudden they looked at each other differently and it was no longer clean. It was no longer innocent. And they're ashamed. And they're aware that they're now naked. They didn't know what naked meant. Now they got a word for it. And they got to cover things up. So they made loincloths out of plants. And in verse 8, then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the tree. So They eat, and the first thing that happens is they look at each other differently. They're just awkward now and shamed. Next thing we find is now it's time for them to meet with God, and they're hiding from God. And so Yahweh, God, calls to the man in verse 9 and says, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The man said to the woman, and, and, and God said in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Now, God knows this. But he's going to make, the, make this man say it. Just like you, you look at a kid with cookie dust all over his face and shirt. Like, what you doing, buddy? Uh, uh, Papa, Papa, I'm sorry. No, what are you doing? Well, you know what he's done. The cookies are eaten and the dust is all over his body. But you're going to make him say it, right? What do you do, buddy? Uh, well, you remember my tummy? Yeah, my, my tummy was hurting. Okay, but what's that got to do with what you're doing? Well, I was thinking uh, flour might calm my stomach down. Oh, okay, so you thought that. Yeah, so I thought I could eat a cookie. The cookie I told you not to eat. Well, yeah, but... My stomach was hurting. How many husbands and wives have had this conversation, right? How many children and parents? How many citizens and police officers? You know, on and on. Okay. And so what about the milk? Well, it was dry in my stomach. So I needed the milk, but I told you not to drink the milk. That was for a recipe tomorrow. I know, but... And we just keep working it out, right? And that's all God's doing to him. Oh, where are you at? 
oh, I'm sorry, we were hiding. Why? Why are you hiding? Never done that before. Well, because we're naked. Who told you you're naked? And him, Adam being a good man, though, he's now a sinner, but he's a good man. He says, I did it. I'm at fault, right? No, he immediately shifts it off on his wife. The fat first metrosexual male was born. He's like, it was her. It was her. And then on top of that, what's he do? He's like, who you gave? Let's not forget who gave you this. I didn't ask for her. I was happy. And then you put me to sleep, and I woke up to her. And she was nice to look at, but I wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for her. And so now he just disregards the man. He looks over, and there's a woman. And he says, what is this you've done? And she doesn't own it either. It's a serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. It's kind of like Aaron, if you know the story of him uh, crafting the golden calf. And Moses comes down and says, what is going on? He's like, I don't know. People threw gold in the fire, and out came this calf. I don't know. And it goes on and on. And that's what every one of you kids do to your parents, and that's what every one of you do to each other. And we all most definitely do to God. I don't know. Somehow he deceived me, and I ate. And now God just turns to the serpent. He says, because you've done it, cursed are you more than any of the cattle, more than every beast of field on your belly. You will go dusty. You will eat all the days of your life, and I will put enmity. Now we have a word of hope between you and the woman, between your seed and the seed of the woman, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. So a specific seed is going to destroy him and you will bruise him on the heel. You're going to harm him, but he will destroy you. And it's the very first hint that there's something to come that will resolve all this. Then he looks at the woman. He's like, okay, so you wanted to get deceived and you ate? Now I will greatly multiply your pain and conception. In pain, you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he's going to rule over you. Now it's interesting, the curse upon the woman is self-contained in her. All right, so now all things related to uh, childbearing. So the whole process of entering into puberty and, and the monthly cycle and all of this, and, and afterwards menopause, just that whole existence of a woman is now just going to be a big pain. And when you get married, you're going to want to rule your husband and he's going to rule you. So now you're going to have strife. What was once a happy marriage is now going to be not. And every one of you know, because everyone, you deal with that in your own marriage. Then he looks at the husband, Adam, and he, he makes Adam's curse very different. Notice what he does. He says to Adam, well, because you chose to listen to the voice of your wife, that's a hard rebuke there, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. So he cuts through all of it. He's like, your problem is that you listen to everyone but me, and it's on you. I commanded you not to. He says, therefore, cursed is the ground. Because of you, in pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Then till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You shall surely die, and you're going to turn back to dust, and I'm going to make the whole process of you dying miserable. 
And so what he does for him is he doesn't make it self-contained in the body and person of Adam. His creation is affected. All of creation now is at war with him. Everything is broken. So prior to that, peace was there. Peace existed. And that peace is what you and I would call shalom in the Bible, that great word. The word peace doesn't carry the richness of shalom. And it's the idea where there's this freedom of disturbance of any kind, both inside you and outside in the environment. All is well. When was the last time any of you can ever say that your life, you had a day of peace, of true shalom? And I will tell you, you were in coma then. You might have moments of peace, but then your mind starts going, or your body acts up or somebody mouths off, or something else happens. We don't even understand peace, shalom, as it's designed and as it was in the garden, that it was just, everything was as it was supposed to be. You didn't have to say, oh, I got a factory in this, I got to get gas, oh, I hope my mom is in a good mood when I visit her. None of those things, just there was peace. Peace between Adam and Eve, peace between mankind and creation, And most importantly, peace between mankind and God. And it's all broken. Sin now becomes a presence and the power. And you say, okay, I got it. You've been talking now for 52 minutes, according to my clock. What's your point? And in that wars began. It just began between Adam and Eve and worked outward. So in chapter 4 of Genesis, we won't read the passage, but verses 3 through 10, we have two of the sons, Abel and Cain. And they go and they make offerings to the Lord. And everyone wants to make a big deal out of Abel's was a blood offering and Cain's was a, a grain offering, offering the fruit of the field. His was, should have been blood and that's why God rejected. Nowhere does the Bible say that. The only reason that God rejected, according to Hebrews, is that it was not given in faith. He did it out of duty but not believing that it was good and right to do. And therefore, God rejected it. He didn't like it. He becomes angry. Stupid big brother always gets his way, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he ultimately kills him. And so he, the first murder comes on. Violence is now the result. And already we see it. Now the blood of the, is in the ground. God says it's shouting forth. Then in verse 23, 22 and 23, one of his sons, Lamech, this is the son of Cain, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, give ear to my word. Why? For I have killed a man for striking me and and a boy for wounding me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. That's what actually is going on in Israel right now. Israel, the prime minister says that what Gaza is going to experience and Palestine is going to experience is going to be something that generations will speak of. We're done, and they're going in, and they're just leveling the place. That's Lamech talking. Whether you agree with it or not, I'm not even telling you I'm in agreement or disagreement. Understand, that's what's happening. That's Lamech. You want to you strike, send strike forces into our kibitzes and kill our women and children? Fine, but we will avenge you 77-fold. And some of you are like, yeah. But that's all a product of sin. 
By chapter 6, the description of the world of humanity, go to chapter 6, verse 5. It's described as great upon the earth, and the result comes the flood. All of humanity, except for Noah and his family, are destroyed. He says, Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. So the, the outworking of that evil was extensive throughout all of the earth. And then he gets into the thoughts of an individual person. Many of you know this so well, but some of you don't. Notice how many intents are evil. Every. Look down at it with me. Make certain you're looking at it. How many? It's every intent of the thought. What's in the intent of a thought? Well, you know what a thought is. The problem is once you think of a thought, you thought a thought. An intent of a thought is before it becomes a thought. And you can't even think about the intent of the thought because once you've thought about the intention, it now becomes a thought if you're tracking. So what I'm saying is literally flowing out of your heart, every person's heart, are things that are not even yet thoughts. And every one of them, God says, is only, not occasionally, not frequently, but only evil and continually. It's just pouring out. That's the human problem. Why do wars exist? Because this is their problem. Your problem, my problem. Sin is the issue. Apart from God's saving intervention through Jesus Christ as sin bearer, apart from the Holy Spirit taking a dead heart that's bound in sin and making it alive in Christ, that's you and I. Every intention of every thought, only evil continually. That sounds actually more like Nietzsche. In fact, one man said that the one who takes original sin seriously knows that life is lived on a descending escalator And it's a tough job just to stand still. Our world is not moving toward better, but it's in this downward dissension because of sin. After the flood, go over to chapter 9. He gives a very interesting command. So everyone's dead. Now he's coming off the ark, and they see a wasteland that's starting to be reborn, and and things are growing again, and they're on uh, dry ground. And it's chapter 9. And in verse 6, he makes this covenant, and he says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. Now, I want you to ask yourself some questions from that. Notice that God, in making that command in verse 6, that God has an assumption. What is the assumption? Just think about this. What is the assumption God is making in this command? And the, the assumption is blood's going to be shed. Nothing got fixed because he saved Noah and his family. Sin's still there. And so immediately he says, so here's what's going to happen now when somebody sheds blood. So what's the response when you shed blood? Meaning, and there it's a euphemism or an idiom better, uh, for dying, for killing. What is to be the biblical response to somebody taking the life of another? Your blood is shed. Now, don't miss this, because what that means then is that there is a lawful way of taking a life and an unlawful way of taking a life. If you take a life, your life is forfeit. But let's just use this in real people. So Jason 
kills a man. He shed a, a man's blood. What do we do with Jason, according to this passage? His blood is to be shed. So I'm the executioner. Somehow you vote the pastor should be that guy. That's his, we, we hired him to do that. So I have to kill him. So I kill the guy. Now what happens? According to this, if you're not thinking, you say, well, now Matt has to die. Well, who needs to do it? Well, John says, I'll do it. Okay, so now you kill me. Now who's, now your blood has to be shed until everyone's gone. Or what he's saying is that one person has done it wrongly and one must now execute justice and take his life. We have to make certain that we keep that distinction when we think about war. All war is wrong. Well, is it? Is there a time in which you must execute justice by taking other lives? This is actually the passage that you should go to when you want to understand capital punishment. Never in the Bible does, is this changed or taken away. When a man or woman kills, takes the life of another, their life should be forfeit. Any of you in the law enforcement, if you think about it, you know your life would be easier. It would be one and done. Though we live in a world where war exists, it's a foreign entity, though. It comes because of sin, and you can't forget it. So Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because now all have sinned. Why? Because we were in Adam, and so we produce this. And so why does war exist? War exists simply, beloved, by sin. We're going to stop there, but uh, let me tie this all up. There's more to it than that, and it's a lot more nuanced. There's that word people hate, but it's a lot more nuanced than we like to think. But you have to come from there, and if you don't start from there, no matter what you say will be wrong. A lot of people get to the right answer, but they get there the wrong way, and then they can't understand why things aren't working out. The answer to this whole thing ultimately is going to be found in the gospel. We have to resolve sin, and the only way we can resolve sin is find it in what Christ did on the cross as our sin bearer and our risen Lord. The only way you're going to ultimately resolve anything is through the gospel, and not all shall believe. And so what we need to understand is that you can, you're, none of you are the president of the United States, none of you ever will be the president of the United States, and you can talk all day long what you think the president should or should not do, but you're, you're not going to be that guy. So embrace that. What should you do as a Christian? Let me deal with that simply. You yourself need to be a man or woman of the gospel. The only answer to what you see going on around you is the gospel. If you look at a Palestinian, say, a terrorist, then you've forgotten the gospel. And if you look at an Israelite and you say, stinking bloody pig of a Zionist, then you're just thinking as a non-Christian. You can look at these and conceptually say, that's wicked. What they did was wrong. And you can have actually no pity on one level for a nation who's being crushed in a war. But you must understand on another level, you must have pity. You must ache as you see the outpouring of the evil of what sin does in our lives. And you'll see it play out in your own homes, with your children. Some of you will tear your clothes in agony as you watch the folly of your sin, as, of your children as they descend into a world pursuing sin like they would be lusting after something. 
That is the cause of war. It's sin. And when we come back and I preach the next time, we'll, we'll develop that a bit more and then get into some other aspects of this and Christian nationalism and violence and how do we deal with it. But let's pray. So, Father, I do pray that you would open up our eyes to this, that we might look around and start seeing that what we are really dealing with is sin. We look about the wasted money of being sent to Ukraine, the amount of ways it's being used in an unrighteous manner. We get bitter. We get bitter with $6 billion being sent to Iran. But we forget that all of this is just what sin looks like. It just keeps doing folly and manipulations and envy. I pray, Father, that we would first learn to begin to put to death the sin that remains in us, having been redeemed out of sin through Jesus Christ, those of us who believe the gospel, that we'd be men and women who are learning to put to death sin as it raises its horrid head within us, that we would not forget that we are sinners saved by grace, that we would look with a sense of pity and compassion to those who do not know. We would not be afraid, but rather we boldly share and speak of the hope found in Jesus Christ. At the same time, Father, we function as citizens. How do we do that? Give us wisdom as we work through this over the next few weeks. I ask in your son's name, amen.